welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. This is not therapy, this is real life. I'm your host, Anna Lindbergh Cedar. And as listeners know, this podcast aims to translate research backed burnout prevention and therapy concepts into actionable self care strategies that any of us can use in our everyday lives. This is why I'm very excited to welcome to the show today, Professor Kathleen Kinsler, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago. She has written for the New York Times and has been named a young scientist by the World Economic Forum, showing promising work in her field. And she is here to talk with us today about her book, called How You Say It, Why You Talk, The Way You Do, and What It Says About You. Welcome to the show, Professor Kinsler. What would you like listeners to understand about the book that you are sharing with us? Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be here. So what I'd like to share is the idea that the way you speak, the language you use, the accent you use, It matters so much for so many areas of your life, for who you connect with, who you don't connect with, um, your economic potential in life, and people just aren't always aware of that. And so I'd like to get the message out that our speech is really, really important. It's really clear that we divide each other and ourselves into groups. Um, There's a lot of prejudice and discrimination out there. And one thing that we're not always thinking about is the way that we speak. And the way that we speak matters so much for who we connect with, who we don't connect with, how we see other people and how they see us. And I think it's really important that we become aware of this. It's interesting the way that you link speech and language and how we divide ourselves into groups. And I'm curious how you came to the overlap between those two subjects. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's a bit of a, I guess, a, a personal observation about the world, which I'll admit is, was not a, you know, terrifically wise observation. Um, you know, I was 21 or 22 years old um, and it was right before I just graduated from college and I was going to go on to graduate school where I was studying developmental psychology. Um, and I spent some time that summer. I was in Croatia and traveling around the Balkans. Um, and at this time, you know, uh, the, there was a civil war in the 90s there, and I think you really still felt the the conflict there, even though the war was over with the you know the time that I was there. Um, and I started to notice that the way people, the language that people used, was such an important marker of their group membership. And so you know I had this textbook that said Serbo Croatian, which was you know my idea as an American what the language was called. But then you go there and people don't you know don't say that. They would say that they speak Serbian or they speak Croatian or Bosnian. And it's kind of like from the outside you can think that this language is one thing. And then when you get on the inside, you see that language has so much complexity and so many different, you know, versions of um, versions of speech and versions of language that people use. And it's because language, it language isn't static. It's not stable over time. It changes to reflect the people who are speaking it and their social beliefs and who they want to be in the world and who they connect with. It's interesting. I wonder mm-hmm. if you and I were having a little bit of parallel process around that same time, because mm-hmm. as a young person, my family uh, lived with a Bosnian-speaking refugee family that didn't oh, wow. speak any amount of English at that time. And we passed around at the dinner table a visual dictionary to try to communicate with each other. And it was, as a young person, amazing to me to see what we could still communicate beyond words and a lot of it was emotion and frustration Mm. and continuing to kind of work on that together and then slowly but surely a little bit of language helped us get there yeah that's Um, amazing Mm -hmm. but everything we had to kind of overcome to 
to, to yeah mm-hmm. and there's so much about language and communication that's not just the words you speak as i think you're getting at and so it's your gestures it's your emotion it's your understanding what the other person thinks and knows and wants and all that feeds into communication um and so i think that um you know, all of that is so important. Um, and in fact, there's even evidence that when people are in this kind of communication breakdown situation, like, you know, you're talking to somebody who really doesn't share your language, like in your example, that people can adapt and, you know, figure out ways to communicate against, you know, kind of against the odds. Folks tend to break into social groups and you mentioned in your book that we're more aware of other forms of discrimination and you see it more blatantly in the policies or protections that folks have. Why is it that language and speech is marginalized in that way or misunderstood Mm -hmm. or yeah I yeah in some ways I like I wish I knew the answer to that and I don't have a perfect answer to why, but I can say how in some ways, I think. And so, you know, it's, we seem to, we often think about language as, um, a way to communicate content, right? And so it's like, okay, I said my thing, I said my words, now you're listening to it. And I think that there's kind of a couple misperceptions in that. So one is that I think I perfectly said my thing and then it's like, you're going to hear it, but that's not always how it works. That there's lots of instances of communication breakdown, which, you know, we could definitely talk about more. And so communication is two-sided and it's reciprocal and it's not just, I said my thing. Um, And then the other thing is it's not just the words you say, but it's the way you say them. And so, you know, part of that could be the emotion or the gestures um, that you were talking about in your example, but also part of it can be that um, the way you speak is in many ways revealing the voices who are speaking to you as a child. And so, you know, the language you speak and often the accent or dialect you use to speak it were all very usually learned as children. Um, as not to say you can't learn a language later on, but it's much more difficult. And so I think we just don't always realize this about ourselves, about how much of our language is deeply embedded in social life, not just um, conveying information. Mm -hmm. I will admit that when I first cracked your book and thought about having you on the show, I thought, oh no, is this going to be a conversation where Professor Kinsler just reads me like a book and because of the (laughs) way I speak says, almost like reading my horoscope or something like that is going to be able to see through me. And I'm curious Mm -hmm. if you think that having the lens of psychology aids you or limits Mm. you in your understanding and speech of language because I noticed in your book you Mm -hmm. went way outside of that discipline Mm. yeah Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if there's something that you're trying to include in that lens Mm. of psychology when you look at speech and language so I mean, one thing is that, you know, I'm really interested in kind of the the social psychology of language and with kids too, right, that I study kids a lot, um, trying to understand how our social thinking gets off the ground in the first place. Um, And the reason that I went so far outside my field is that most, I mean, language is a huge topic for psychology, of course, you know language acquisition, um, language processing. You know, there's so much about language and psychology, but most of it's not about the social stuff, you know? And so, and then likewise, when you look at social psychology research and you look at all this bias and, you know, intergroup interactions and perception of different people, all this kind of stuff, you usually don't see language listed. And so it's almost like there's this gap in the field. Um, But I'm not the first person to think of this because if you look at linguistics and anthropology and some parts of sociology or economics, you start to see just the incredible ways that language impacts people's lives. And so I really wanted the book to be a place to, you know, put together all those different, um, all those different disciplines. at some of the disparities that can exist based on 
language yeah. access and discrimination mm -hmm. what were some of the greatest disparities that you found in your research yeah so um maybe let me start with an example that's not my research but i think it really provides a nice overview Great. Um, thank you so um some of the seminal studies on language attitudes were conducted in the 1960s in Montreal by a psycholinguist named Lambert and some colleagues. Um, and the idea was that the time that people might have these kind of like inside beliefs that they don't tell you about and they might not even necessarily know them themselves, but that, you know, externally they'll tell you something like, for instance, in this case, it was in Montreal, there were a lot of um, there was a lot of inequality across groups. The English-speaking um, Canadians just occupied really the lion's share of economic opportunity as opposed to French speakers. But explicitly, people would say, you know, we're all one nation, um, and like it's not that one group is valued over another, that sort of thing. So the idea was that you might have these kind of inner feelings that you wouldn't tell someone. Now, in modern time, we talk about this a lot, and it's called implicit versus explicit attitudes, right? And so it's the idea like you could harbor racist attitudes that you might not say out loud, but somebody could implicitly have a racist attitude. Um, but so that was this was kind of long before any of that kind of modern terminology. And so what they found in Canada was that adults at the time, they would listen to some voices and they'd actually record the same people speaking in English and French. So it would be like the same, you know, the same Canadian speaking in English and French. And then a bunch of people would listen to them and think, oh, yeah, that first guy, the English speaker, he sounded really, you know, nice and smart and tall. And then that second guy, I don't know, he just sounded a little shorter and like not as impressive and, you know, maybe not quite as nice, something like that. And of course, it was the same person. And so what you see are these like societal attitudes seeping into people's judgments of individuals. Um, so and they found this a lot with the English Canadian, the English speaking Canadians evaluating both types of speech. But even with French speaking Canadians, they often found the English speaking voice to be more favorable in a bunch of dimensions. So it shows how you can have these attitudes that are kind of against your own group and you don't always you're not always aware of them. Mm -hmm. And in this study, they're talking about who's nice or short or tall. Yeah. But I imagine that has an avalanche effect when it comes right. to applying for jobs or yep. housing discrimination or police brutality. Yeah, you've got it. And so, you know, I think all of those things. And so it's sort of like a lot of these studies are kind of measuring, you know, this one was a long time ago. And right, it seems like somewhat inconsequential, just kind of like, oh, how do I evaluate somebody when I don't know anything else about them? But I think the idea is that we're evaluating people and we don't know anything else about them all the time. That's how we act as humans, you know, and it's like, who do you bother to get to know? Who do you bother to invite on your job interview and so forth? And that's where you still today see a lot of ways that the way you speak can really figure into that and people don't always realize that. One of the things that your book helped me become more awakened to is just how much speech and language can be part of passing privilege. And it is yes. flexible that people mm -hmm. can code switch between mm -hmm. contexts. And yeah. uh, sometimes it's within your control and sometimes mm -hmm. it's not within your control. And I remember a, a Terry Gross interview with the author of language and gender, I'm forgetting the author and researcher's name, but she found that you know, the discussion around vocal fry and upspeak. Mm -hmm. She made the argument that that's just another form of policing women's bodies yeah. when we yeah. give them mm -hmm. the advice that in order to craft a professional mm -hmm. persona that they should yeah. speak in some kind of NPR voice. Yeah. And so I'm curious, what, what advice do you offer mm -hmm. folks as they develop awareness of mm -hmm how they speak and what it gives away about their background and yeah. i can imagine folks feeling the urge to assimilate and mm -hmm. acculturate to yeah. gain access to privilege mm -hmm. and um feeling an ethical moral dilemma of having to give up totally. their ancestry or culture yeah. in order to gain access mm -hmm. to some of those protections yeah i mean i think these are such good questions um 
let me split it in half. Let me say gender and vocal fry. And then let's talk about, um, you. you know, marginalization and oppressed groups. Cause I think in some way they tap on related, but different issues. Um, so for the gender one, I mean, it's so interesting. And I find, you know, I was raised, like I watched, you know, Beverly Hills 90210 um, in high school. So like, which had, you know, a lot of Upspeak, or you know, I talk in my book about the movie Clueless as a really good example. You know, this was like I was a teenager at that time, and so I find myself doing that in my own speech. If um, you know, sometimes, right? Not all the time, but sometimes. Um, what I'll say about vocal fry is there's actually some really interesting research about this. And so, you know, this is kind of like this creaky, gravelly ending. You're kind of like trailing off at the end of a sentence that you find, and you find it, you do find it among younger people. Um, men do you have a good impression of it? Because I am terrible. At um, I don't think, I don't know if I have a good impression, but I'll try. Um, so it would be like, wow, that's really cool. I think okay. kind of like right. that. So you yeah. kind of, you, you trail off and then, wow. Uh-huh. And you get creaky. Um, and so, um, so there were researchers who looked at what people think of this. And now one thing to note is that, you know, for as long as we've been, um, as we've been able to know, you know, have recordings of speech, old people always don't like the way that young people speak. And so that's just kind of a truth. And so if you see yourself doing that, you know, you're like, oh, texting language, it's just like destroying our language or, you know, whatever else, I don't even know, like whatever else kind of like social media stuff that's happening. And if it just feels offensive or it feels like there's words that are out of place or who knows what, everybody has always felt that. And probably, you know, your, when you were a child, your grandparents probably didn't yes. like your speech, right? Totally. So it's just- Change, the only constant is change. Yes, exactly. And really what's happening is that adolescents are often the ones who are moving the language and often it's even adolescent girls. And so um, so what you see is, you know, languages change slightly over generations. So it doesn't change, you know, all at once. But if you went back, say like a thousand years ago or so, you probably wouldn't understand English. And so so at some point it gets, you know, at some point it really changes. It's often pretty gradual. It changes more when there's times of like a, a war or civil conflict or some reason that, you know, drives people apart. Um, but where I was going with the language change is that often it's adolescent girls who are driving the change and adults don't like it. But one thing to note is that some researchers have looked at like, what do millennial women think about vocal fry? And they don't think it sounds bad. You know, if anything, they think it sounds like, I don't know, I can't remember the exact quote from the paper, but you know, it's like this woman who's kind of going somewhere who sounds like she's pretty professional. And so our evaluations of different kinds of speech can change too. Um, and so I think that's important to know that it's flexible and to know that if you feel now I think upspeak is complicated because in some ways I do think it's wrapped up in notions of it, it sounds sort of questioning right and so then that can get into a notion of you know a gendered notion of thinking that somebody doesn't know what she wants to say or something like that but even there I think it's really important to try to kind of check your biases that when you hear somebody speaking you don't want to lose out on the opportunity to engage with them just because they're using the language of a generation that's not quite yours. So I, and yeah. I appreciate the difference when you're talking about mm-hmm. the clueless generation and upspeak yeah. and the information yeah. for more marginalized mm-hmm. groups. There are yeah. going to be different so, factors at play. What yeah. are some of those differences? Yeah, so I mean, So you get into really complicated territory when you start to think about speech of different groups of people. So we could talk about different groups in the US. Um, Now, one, you know, speech gets complicated and involved in how we think about all different kinds of categories. So speech and race are really intertwined. Um, And this is where it's really important to realize that no way of speaking, no dialect is inherently good or bad, better or worse at communicating all content that humans want to say. That's just not how language works. And I think part of the problem is that when you speak in a way that your society can consider standard in some way, you think that it's better than some other way of speaking. And it's not. They're just all languages and dialects. And so you see this a lot when you look at Black Americans who speak in African American English. 
Um, now, this is a dialect of, this is a, you know, a historic dialect of English that is in no way better or worse than any other dialect. It's just a language. But the problem is, is that people can be um, incredibly prejudiced against this dialect, even though that's not fair. And it's wrapped up as sort of another, another aspect of systemic racism. And so I think people just don't have necessarily the awareness that they're bringing some sort of, um, they're bringing an attitude about a specific kind of speech that can leave the speaker feeling really devalued. I thought that was a really heartbreaking example that you shared in the book that the really important witness testimony in the yeah. Martin case yeah. was left out because of that kind of discrimination against her speech patterns and whether or not the jurors could relate to that pattern yeah. of speech. Yeah, absolutely right. So it's this, you know, really um, just incredibly sad story um, of a woman, um, Rachel Jantel, who was, um, she was a witness in, you know, in, she was hearing on the phone, right, when her friend Trayvon Martin was shot. Um, and, you know, jurors reported afterwards that though she really, you know, talked about what happened, they said that they didn't believe her. Now, there was a lot of complexity in the case. Um, and so, you know, I think that it, it, we can't say that, you know, 100% of the case comes down to dialect, but linguists um, have gone through and really tried to understand what the jurors were thinking and what they took from it. And what they determine um, is that, the jurors just weren't listening. You know, now part of it is that when you're listening to a dialect that's less familiar to you, there could be parts of it that are harder to understand. But part of it is also that there's just such tremendous stigma against her dialect that, you know, there's lots of research suggesting that when you feel like you something is devalued and it's not worth it, then it's really easy to shut down as a listener and to not even really try to understand or to engage. I imagine that makes it really hard to have a conversation with someone in that space because they're not mm -hmm. even awake to the fact that they're not hearing what they're yeah. not hearing. I think that's right, that it's hard to not, real it's hard to realize what you don't hear until you take a step back and think about it, you know? So there's these studies where a bunch of people were asked to interact with somebody. I think, I think they were interacting with somebody whose first language was Korean and then she spoke English, so it was all in English. And then some of the participants thought that she had a really heavy accent and they kind of didn't like it and others didn't feel that way. And then what they found is as the conversation went on, the people who went, now they're all interacting with the same woman. So it's like, it's not like it's her speech really, or it, but mm -hmm. it's like, they're all interacting with the same person. And then those who think she has a heavy accent and don't really like it, the conversation just kind of unravels and it doesn't go very well and it's not as good at communicating information um, versus those who didn't feel that way. The conversation goes well because when you don't understand something, you ask questions, you follow up, there's kind of this give and take. And so that's something that I think is really important to keep in mind that when you feel like someone's not being a good communicator with you, part of it could be your fault or in a more optimistic way, there might be something you could do about it. That if communication isn't going well, there might be a way that you could be a better listener as opposed to just asking the other person to be a better communicator. Sounds like you're arguing for an opportunity for greater awareness from another standpoint. And I'm wondering what that would look like for yeah. less of the pressure to fall on the individual and to have yeah. more so, inclusion in that way. Yeah, so I think, I mean, this is a challenging problem and that somebody could say to me, you know, oh, so are you arguing that somebody who moves to this country shouldn't learn English, right? And that's not at all what I'm arguing. I think the way to think about it is that I'm pro-language learning. So the idea is that all language learning is really beneficial. And I think part of the stigma is kind of like trying to get over the idea that there's exactly one right linguistic profile to have. And that if you speak in a different language or um, 
there's a lot of value of learning English. But likewise, if you just speak English, there's a lot of value in learning another language too. And so I think it's both ways. It's not to say that we shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't be teaching kids to speak language. Sorry, it's not to say that we shouldn't be teaching kids to speak English. And in fact, there's a lot of ways that we really fall down on the job where when you've got these English language learners, these kids who don't speak English at home that come to school, this is their first time in English and then they're not just learning the language, they're having to learn all the subjects in the language, which is really hard if you don't speak the language, right? And so we should be doing a lot better to support those kids in terms of learning the language, which is something that we could do because their brains are still really young when they get to kindergarten and so they could still be learning language. I love the comforting research that you shared with parents later in your book where you explain that, yes, it's very common for them to have a quote-unquote delay in language as Mm -hmm. they learn to, you know, Gothoe and cat at the same time, and that's just fine. And in fact, there are other (laughs) kinds of flexibility that come with learning two languages, and Mm -hmm. as you say, protection against dementia, possibly in Alzheimer's later in life. So you're dispelling a lot of myths already. Mm. I think a a basic myth that a lot of Americans have is that we have a national language, which we do not. We don't even have English or a specific form of English. Um, and that there are a lot of benefits to just learning any kind of language at all. I like that, that openness. What else do you think we could do in a practical way to help people understand some of the research that you found? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, another kind of another facet of this is about how we engage with kids. Um, you know, so which I think a lot of parents are thinking about right now. Um, So, you know, one thing is, as you just alluded to, is this idea that being exposed to multiple languages is a good thing. And I think part of um, part of what you're talking about, this idea that we've got this sort of misperception about English as a national language, which it is not. I also think we have this misperception about um, what some people call the monolingual myth And it's not just, it's kind of the idea that your brain only has so much capacity. And so if you like, you know, if you tie it down with another language, it might just not have quite enough room for the other stuff, right? So it's like, oh, well, I'd love for my kid to learn multiple languages, but you know, I'm really worried about them learning English and math and reading and science and all this other important stuff. And so I'm just not sure there's room in there to work in Spanish. And I think, you know, maybe people wouldn't say it exactly that explicitly, but I think you do find this kind of thinking that it's hard to make it a priority. And even if you did, it might just like, what if it crowded out the other learning? But that's just not how it works. And so kids can learn two languages and all the other stuff. Absolutely. And so I think just remembering that and like, you know, if you have a kid or if you're, you know, in a situation where you're, you're thinking about childhood or education or policy to remember that kids are miraculous linguistic creatures and they can learn multiple languages early in life. And they're really good at learning it when they're young and not so good when they're learning it when they're older. And so we're kind of flipping the way that we, you know, teach languages in this country and that we often, you know, either don't teach at all or teach it when kids are much older, which is just not the most, you know, advantageous time to learn it. Um, The way you're describing language, it sounds like learning another language, any language inherently is a diversity and inclusion issue, given the fact that Mm -hmm. language is such a complex issue, it overlaps Mm -hmm. with a lot of different kinds of experiences and ways of viewing the world and ways of understanding yourself. Mm -hmm. And when you say not only you know is there a myth that we could only learn one language at a time you describe a lot of research that shows that when people speak different languages they actually experience themselves differently yeah. mm-hmm. i thought i was uh, the only one who got really fluent in spanish as she mm-hmm. did her junior year abroad and mm-hmm. uh, felt the warmness of that language right yeah. i thought that was just a coincidence but mm-hmm. being asked to dance and yeah you know hearing um ways of saying things that i just hadn't heard before mm-hmm. except in that language it reminds me of the ditches that people have the sayings that that people have to communicate cultural values and how that shows up in language 
Yeah. So that's interesting when you say it's an inclusion issue. And I do think it is. So one thing you're describing is sort of like the inclusiveness of your life experiences and just you can have broader life experiences in different languages. And in fact, that's right, that the research shows that you can think different ways. So you can like often your memories are somewhat bound to the language in which you learn them. It's not to say you can't remember across languages. Of course you can. But when people start to just when bilinguals describe themselves and what they remember about themselves is kind of autobiographical memories, which are like the things you remember that make you feel like you, like what kind of person you are and what kind of experiences have you had in the world, that people bring up different things in different languages, you know? And so like you're saying, if you've got, you know, this whole set of experiences in one language and one culture, that's going to be reflected there. Um, the other way I kind of think of it as an inclusion issue is just if you're a kid and you're raised in a place where people speak in different ways, you have this whole set of social experiences that a monolingual kid might not have. And so you might be hearing and thinking things like, oh, well, mom speaks that way to me and to grandma, but dad doesn't understand and dad speaks this other way to so-and-so or we speak this language in home, but then we speak this other language in school. Or if you're in more of a bilingual community, maybe, you know, everybody speaks this language and this other language, but I've kind of noticed when we're in this sort of context, this one comes out more, we're in this other kind of social context, this other one comes out more and so forth. So it's like, you're tracking who understands what, who speaks what to whom, who hangs out in what way, and how does that predict their language? And so there's just this tremendous diversity of social life that you're tracking that a monolingual kid just wouldn't have those social problems, that, that those same kinds of um, social challenges. And then in some of my work and in other people's work, we find that when you've got all this practice and keeping track of all this stuff, it can make you a better communicator more generally because you get better at perspective taking. It's like this massive training and taking other people's linguistic perspectives that I think can then play out into other areas of life too. research I'm remembering now going back to grad school is a little bit more on the disparity end of the spectrum when we see mixed status households and only the younger generation having access to bilingualism and then mm -hmm. having to do tasks that are usually reserved for parents like translating medical forms or going to doctor's visits and again it's an example of how we put the onus on the individual to navigate mm. those linguistic barriers and sometimes it means kids are in harm's way but we have to couple that with the fact that being bilingual has so many advantages like you're saying it mm -hmm. makes you wonder what it would look like if we did have all the supports available to just let kids be kids and yeah. learn language and also mm -hmm. have um, adults be able to have access to those supports right. later in life, although the research you share is a little bit mixed on how easy or difficult it is for adults to learn a language. So I think probably the context you're describing, um, which probably comes up a lot when you think about immigration more generally, that the adults coming in really don't have the support services that they need is kind of sounds like the the sort of situation you're describing where then they you know rely on their kids to help which is great if the kids can help but i think as you're saying there's going to be a lot of challenges for that both for the kids and the parents in that situation um what i'll say is that adults absolutely can learn a new language so it's not the case that you just like can't do it at all however it does get much harder um, and in particular, some aspects of the language learning might prove to be more challenging than others. So this is why I think accent is used as this really strong way that people evaluate each other and that often accent can be the hardest part to learn. So people, you can imagine people and you maybe even know people if you imagine like a professor you had um, or a teacher at some point who was, you know, or a writer, somebody who was just perfect at English in terms of the grammar and the word choice, um, but yet is still identifiable by their accent as being a non-native speaker. And so those people exist, that they can become really perfect speakers in every way, but often the sound of their language, you know, kind of shows their youth in some way. 
So for those, say, those, you know, example of the, you know, the immigrant families, um, I think that absolutely people can be given a lot of support in trying to learn a language, but I also think that it's important to understand that if somebody doesn't speak English in the way that you do, or they're not a native speaker, that it's not their fault. It's not like people have this idea like, oh, well, you should just learn English. Like it's really hard and you're probably not because, you know, because you're an adult, you're probably not gonna be able to master that native sounding accent and that's okay. It is interesting that that critique You'll have to correct me if I'm wrong in the mm -hmm. research, but it tends to come from folks who are monolingual themselves. Right. So it's a, it's hard to imagine someone guessing how easy or hard a language yeah. would be to learn if they haven't done that themselves. And I often wonder what those, you know, that kind of that kind of critique. Did those people try to take a language in high school? Because it's really hard, you know, if you remember, you know, taking a language class as an adolescent or as a young adult. It's really, really hard. Well, you're sharing some really practical tips so far. So far, I'm hearing, you know, bust some myths around um, whether there's such a thing as good or bad language mm -hmm. and something about older generations need to get with the times and understand <laughs> that language is always changing and evolving. And you have a whole set of tips for parents. What about non-parents mm -hmm. who, you know, okay, fine, they've downloaded the language learning app and they're trying yeah. to do that. Is there anything else folks can do? It makes me wonder, you know, do we need to add a section or do we already have resources in terms of implicit bias training mm -hmm. in the workplace or other ways to access people to get, get the word out? It seems like reading your book yeah. is a really great <laughs> idea. I've enjoyed it. But what do you, how do you, how do you help people understand something that's invisible and hard to point mm -hmm. at? Yeah. I think that this kind of conversation is really important because I'm guessing that there's going to probably be listeners who say, well, you know, in some ways you've always known this. Like, it's not like I'm saying anything surprising, right? That the way you speak says something about your childhood or that if you hear different dialects, yeah, like, of course you might think different things about them or you might have stereotypes about different ways of speaking. You might think some languages sound educated and others don't. Like, none of that's surprising. The stereotypes are out there. What I think is surprising is when people just sit back for a second and reflect on it and say, oh, wait, I've got those stereotypes about language, you know, is it possible that I would treat somebody differently because they speak in a certain way? Like that had never occurred to me. Or is it possible that I would be treated a certain way better or worse, right? Like either I'm speaking from a place of privilege and saying, oh, okay, like I have this linguistic privilege in this way that I'd never thought of before. And if I make a phone call, you know, I sound in a certain way and that's gonna make somebody be more likely to answer my question or to rent me an apartment or whatever, you know, whatever it is that I'm asking for, and then realize that somebody else might not have that privilege. So in some ways, I think just having this conversation is hopefully a way for people to reflect and see their language and the language of others in a different way. Yeah. And I think people, you know, people don't give it the same kind of attention that they should. And so, you know, I'll just give an example of, um, so I do a lot of my research is with kids. And so I'll have kids, you know, come into my developmental psychology lab and we play child-friendly games. So, you know, they'll, we'll show them different people or they'll hear different voices. And we just ask them what they think about the different people. That's like one kind of example of the study we might do. Um, and so, you know, if a kid comes into my lab, and expresses some sort of racial bias. So say it's a white kid who says they like the other white kids. Now, this emerges at some point in development um, and it's something we should you know, think a lot about. Um, and I, but when a parent sees this, they're deeply uncomfortable as they should be, because this is a really critical problem with our country that attitudes about race is being, you know, are being transmitted to kids really early in life. So parents are really uncomfortable. But then if I flip the script and all of a sudden the kid is evaluating people who speak in different accents and the kid likes all the, you know, uh, Native American English people, the parent, it's like a relaxed 
sense in the room. You know, the parents like, oh, my kid's just really good at language. They're picking, you know, they're picking everything correctly. It's kind of like that. And so it's almost like it's just not even on people's radars as something that you would notice or you would feel uncomfortable about kind of watching this kind of bias. It's almost like people don't think it's a form of prejudice if they're saying something positive, like saying, oh, it's so exotic or beautiful. They don't realize that they're othering that culture in the process. Definitely. I imagine some folks are feeling uncomfortable getting started and understanding terminology. And have you learned any particular terms that you appreciate that feel Mm -hmm. more inclusive and that you want other folks to understand as they're starting to understand more about the impact of speech and language. Yeah, so one thing that um, that's important to think about in addition to thinking about the way we speak and the way our speech says a lot about us is also how we choose to use words. And of course this matters in like so many different ways, right, your, your word choice. But I can imagine kind of as you're saying that somebody feels like, you know, they want to be egalitarian, they don't want to be racist, they want to do what they can, and then they feel nervous, right? Because you don't, even if you've got good intentions, you wouldn't want to say the wrong thing, that sort of thing. And so, you know, one tip I have is to think about, try to stop yourself if you find yourself talking about a whole group of people as being one group of people. And so, you know, and you might find yourself, and it could even be a positive thing, right? So you could talk about some group of people, like, you know, you imagine calling out, you know, an entire racial group or an entire nationality or an entire religious community, and it could be something really nice about them. But the idea is when you start talking about a whole group of people as being just like one group and using language in that way, you lose the individuals. And that's where a lot of prejudice and stereotypes come from. So I think that's just one thing to keep in mind that if you're saying something and you realize you're talking about everybody as if everybody who's from this group is the same, that's, you know, that's like sort of an implicit assumption in your speech. That's like one thing you could think about. Another thing you might notice in other people's speech, and you could think about in your own, um, this one is maybe less that you'd correct it and more just sort of like a fun fact about understanding linguistic bias is that people often convey the same information differently when they're talking about someone they like versus someone they don't like, or somebody that's from a group that they like versus a group that they don't like. So what I mean by that is like, let's say you saw, you know, John hit Mark. Okay. You could say something like John hit Mark, or you could take an abstraction like John seems like a violent guy. Now you see where I'm getting from that, right? And so if you like John, if John's kind of like you, you might just be like, oh, you know, John hit Mark. I don't know, just happened. Versus if John's not like you or John's from a group that you don't like, you're going to be way more likely to take the abstraction and you're going to say, oh, John's violent. And so I think that this is not to say we have to police our language all the time. I think that would be, you know, really draining in that way. And so this, you know, this kind of bias is probably going to come out sometimes. But I think it's something to reflect on that, you know, we often have imperfect information about people. And so you're just given this one snippet. And then maybe when you find yourself going for the abstract generalization, thinking something like, oh, this is really deeply indicative of John's character and, you know, who he is, and it's something negative, maybe you just want to kind of pause for a second and just imagine, well, wait, what if I really liked John and I saw the same thing? What would I, what would I think about him more globally? It almost reminds me of the principle of similarity that comes from couples research from John and Julie Gottman. They encourage couples when they're uh, tempted to fight with each other, just mm-hmm. to imagine that negative quality or trait that you're thinking about your partner. Have you ever had that negative quality or oh, trait? Or if you're thinking you're better than some other group, um, has that you know group mm-hmm. ever had that same positive quality? And we start to realize folks are a lot more similar than different and diverse mm-hmm. in that in that way. Yeah. Couples also have um, sometimes communication is hard because 
you, so we've all got this problem of overestimating how good we are at communicating. Like I said this thing and now I think you understood it, right? And so there's some studies even in a hospital context where one doctor can communicate information to another doctor and a lot of information is lost and the first doctor wasn't aware of it. So, it can, you know, communication can break down in scary ways, but your couple example made me think of some work showing that sometimes couples actually are worse at at um, estimating how much the person understood them because it's sort of like you think they understand you and you think they know what you mean. I find myself doing this all the time and I'm like, wait, why don't you know that, right? And my husband's like, because you didn't tell me and you just can't, of course, assume that even if you love this person and know them really well that they're in your head, um, you do actually have to communicate. What would you say to folks who are just getting started with learning what speech and language says about them or helps them understand about their own context? I think I would just say, try paying attention to it. Like try, you know, just kind of noticing a situation where, you know, you feel like somebody is overestimating their ability to, their ability to communicate. Um, and then, you know, actually sometimes we're better at seeing it in other people than ourselves. So it's easier maybe to watch other people communicate and see a breakdown than it is when you're talking to realize that like you're not actually communicating what you want. So I would pay attention to it. So I would pay attention to places where you see miscommunication. And then I would just notice how when you walk around the world that people speak in different ways, um, you know, insofar as we're able to talk to them in this new, you know, socially distanced reality, but, you know, insofar as you're having conversations with people um, and just notice the way that language comes up. And I think all of a sudden it will feel a lot more central to your life than maybe it did before. Interesting. And as people go out in the world and they play anthropologist in this way and listen to different accents and patterns and of speech, I'm wondering if there are any social skills that you want to help people understand as they get to know different cultures and have cross-cultural conversations. I was impressed by all the different personal stories that you share in your book of your community of folks who've shared their personal stories. Um, but just as I admitted earlier, feeling a little nervous thinking about my background and my mm. accent and what it says about me, is it too, um, you know, in someone's business to go up to them and mm. ask about their accent if someone's feeling curious or wants to know more? Is there anything you would help them understand yeah. about how to do that in an appropriate way? Well, one way to not do it, which I've heard from a lot of people can be really offensive, is this kind of othering, like, where are you from, from? Like, you know, and so I think that's important. You don't want to make an assumption about where somebody's from. And I think that's important to remember, right? Um, and so, but I think what you can do is express interest in learning more about somebody, you know? So when I hear something in somebody's speech that, you know, suggests, and of course, you know, I am kind of paying attention sometimes because, um, because I study this, you know, and you hear something and you're like, huh, I wonder if maybe English wasn't this person's native language, right? I feel like I hear something else. Um, you know, I sometimes will say, but you probably don't want to say that. I want to be like, you know, I feel like maybe English isn't your native tongue. Like that sounds kind of othering and making an assumption because, you know, who knows, like sometimes I'll just ask somebody, tell me like, what languages did you grow up speaking? You know, or something like that that's kind of about their childhood, or you could start it with yourself. You know, you could say something about your own linguistic background. Like, you know, I grew up speaking English, um, but I also learned French um, when I was an adolescent. And so, you know, I speak it well, just one, you know, I was curious, like, do you speak other languages? And I think that that's, if you ask somebody if they speak other languages, it's not starting with the assumption that they do or that there's anything you know right or wrong with the way that they're speaking English. I think it's lovely to start the conversation with basic etiquette around consent most generally right I yeah. not assume that anyone wants to have a conversation if they don't but starting with a good healthy I statement about mm. um, you know what you're interested in and what you're learning about and if I find that if someone's interested in having that conversation like you say they'll they'll volunteer it themselves. Mm -hmm.
Catherine, is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know before we end today's conversation? Well, we've talked a lot about the, you know, the, the advantages of linguistic diversity. And so part of that, I think, is just an open-mindedness about the value of different languages. Um, and part of that is even thinking about your own family or your own kids, if you're a parent, um, in terms of how kids can have these benefits from learning multiple languages. Um, the other thing I'll just say kind of more generally is that I think a lot of families feel stressed um, about if there's a language in their family, it's hard to keep it up in some ways, right? If particularly if you're in a place like the US where everybody, where you might be in a really, you know, monolingual English kind of context. So if you have a language that your family speaks, I just, I hope you realize that it's a value and that it, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of positivity to that. And there's a lot of positivity with social connections, which like, you know, language is such an important part of culture. And so if you have the benefit of an additional language, um, I think it's a really amazing thing and that people should feel good about that diversity in their lives. I think it's nice to think of it as a spectrum as well, too. When, when you look at bilingualism, it's not that you either do or don't speak a language. So if you're feeling yeah. nervous about getting started, you can just get started and yeah. enjoy the benefits, even if it's just knowing how to read a menu or saying hello and getting to know new people, you can you can enjoy the rich diversity of a language without having to be perfectionist about it. Absolutely. That's really, yeah, really true. Well, thank you so much for joining us on today's show. If folks are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you? Either a website or social media, where should they go? Yeah, so I have a website. Um, you know, probably the easiest way to find me would just be to Google Katherine Kinsler University of Chicago because I'm a psychology professor, so I'd be up there on the website. Um, but you know, I have a web. I have a website for my lab, which is uh, dsclab.uchicago.edu, and you can read more of um, op-eds that I've written, uh, academic papers if you you know really felt so inspired, um, and then. Also, I do research with kids. We're actually doing a ton of research right now virtually. And so you could sign up if your kids wanted to participate in one of these studies. As a parent, you could sign up um, and do that. And I'm also on Twitter. K underscore Kinsler is my Twitter handle. Thank you so much for sharing all of your insights and um, perspectives on language. It's been great to have you. And thank you listeners for joining us. If you're interested in learning more about self-care and therapy concepts, head over to therapyforreallife.com. Therapy for Real Life also offers workplace workshops to help your team buffer against the stresses of daily life. Therapy for Life is known for the Burnout Prevention Hackathon, which teaches your team self-care strategies that are backed by research to help you interrupt burnout and promote self-care. Now that work has moved primarily to virtual and work from home, Therapy for Real Life has adapted the Burnout Prevention Hackathon for the online community. Get in touch to discuss your interest in stress management, burnout prevention, relationship building, and other self-care workshops, and how to adapt these trainings for your team's needs. Mm -hmm.